Welcome to the Best Ever You Show with your host, Elizabeth Hamilton Garino, CEO and founder of the Best Ever You Network, helping you live your life to the fullest. How? Real people, including celebrities, real advice, real places, products, and businesses, real life stories. It's all right here for you with this radio show, printed magazine, websites, community, and more. Remember to visit us online, too, at besteveryou.com. And now here's your host, CEO and founder of the Best Ever You Network, Elizabeth Hamilton Garino. Ah, that all sounds so fancy-schmancy, but I am in my home office in my sweats with my hair on top of my head. <laughs> it's a true <laughs> Best Ever You form, as we always do. Thank you for listening. I'm Elizabeth, and I am really excited to welcome Todd Sipperman to the Best Ever You show today. And I don't know, Todd, do you have as much snow as we do up here in Maine? No, we don't, thank goodness. Down here in Philly, it's just uh, today's beautiful, although it's, it's, it has been the usual cold and rainy that we see down here. Yeah, it's, we've got, uh, we got snow as far as I can see, so I'm just going to look the other way. That's what you get for living in Maine, Elizabeth. <laughs> exactly. I'll focus <laughs> on the computer and think baseball. And when I think baseball strongly enough, the snow starts to melt, so it's all good. Um, <laughs> So we are not here to talk baseball. We're here to talk about we're going to put that financial services hat back on and talk about compliance because we've got you here. You're the founding principal. I don't know what that means, but to me it means owner of Sipperman Compliance Services, and um, that's a huge firm in the compliance industry. And you have written a book, and I am so excited to share your book with our audience and talk about everything compliance because we're compliance family. So um, yeah, what made you think about writing a book? Yeah, so it's it's uh, it, it is sort of ironic, right? I, I've been I'm I'm a compliance professional. I'm actually a lawyer by training. I've been I've been a lawyer for 25 years, and I started a compliance services firm about 15 years ago after leaving a, a corporate job. Um, and it's sort of uh, uh, because I felt people were looking for it. I, I started a blog. Uh, back in 2008, just to sort of keep everyone updated on, on things that are going on. There was so much change going on in the industry, so much regulation going on. I started writing sort of a, an email to, to interested clients every day, say, hey, this just happened. Hey, this just happened. And that turned into a daily blog, which now I've been doing for over 11 years. And it goes out, uh, I say daily, it's about three to five times a week, depending on how active the uh, regulators, mostly the SEC, some FINRA, how, how active they are. And then what I was doing, Elizabeth, at the end of every year, I would sort of take what I call those, I call them little trees because it's a sort of a daily thing, you know, this enforcement action, that rule, et cetera. And I sort of took those and, and I sort of created themes at the end of the year. I did these speeches, you know, this is, you, you've been reading my blog, here's what this means to you on, on a more, uh, on, on a, on a, uh, from, you know, go up 30,000 feet, look at it from the forest. And people really like that. They sort of like this idea that I could pull it together and, and create some, some trends for people. And then I, I sort of came up with the idea, well, let's take this one step further. I, I do the, 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 the annual review. Let's, let's, take this, let's go deeper. Let's look at the last few years and see if I can come up with you know, broader trends that would be useful to both uh, you know, C-suite financial services executives, but also you know, the compliance professionals to practice in the area. And that was the genesis for the book. Uh, and uh, it was, it's been a lot of fun. I, I really, really enjoyed writing it. Um, I have uh, two teenage daughters I'm always driving all over the place and waiting for, so it gave me a lot of a lot of downtime <laughs> to do the writing. And um, spent a lot of time at various Starbucks in and around the Philadelphia area. And uh, and then I finally put the book together. So it was, it was a really fun process, and I learned a ton. 
So you're outnumbered too. Three girls in the house. I've got five boys in the house. <laughs> yeah, I'm heavily outnumbered. I, I am heavily outnumbered, and and and, and that's that's okay by me. <laughs> me too. I'm good. But so the book's called The Compliance Advantage: Ten Must Know Trends to Protect Your Investment Firm. What right. made you pick these ten things? Or, you know, they must be near and dear to your heart and very important. Yeah, you know, I, I was really trying to be very careful not to bring too much bias to it. I, I wanted, I, you know, I'm a lawyer by training, like I said, Elizabeth, and I, I really like to look at the facts and, 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 and let the facts draw their own conclusions. I didn't want to say, okay, this is what I'm thinking based on this, that, or the other thing, this client or that matter. I wanted to really look at all the alerts that I had done over the last couple of years and say, okay, am I seeing anything sort of emerge? And, and, and I did. I really, I really felt that uh, a couple of things that emerged that I didn't expect to and some other things that I sort of expected I, I, I had to think about. But they, they really came out. And there are certain areas that um, – you know, we left for what I'll call the next edition, and I know we're going to talk about the trends. But you know, one of the things I don't talk terribly much about in this book is cryptocurrency and and you know, you know, blockchain and that sort of stuff. And I, it, it, I'll call that if these are the ten trends right now, that's the emerging trend, and I certainly expect to be uh, dealing with that in, in addition to. Yeah. So on the call, am I allowed to go there with you? <laughs> because I was going to well, ask let's go there. you let's do that. about crypto and blockchain. Hey, yeah. This is your ch- this is your show. <laughs> okay, I won't ask it right now, but just remind us before we go because it's such a hot topic right now, and nobody knows the difference. But I mean, I he- still hear people confusing Bitcoin and blockchain. But, yes. I mean, confusing the two terms and everything. So we'll go there toward the end. But for now, um, how, how would you like to do this? Would you like to pick a few of them, or do you want to rattle off all ten, and then we'll pick a, f- a few that are your favorites and go in depth? Because you know yeah, we well- could. These are good. Let's do that. I'll, I'll, I'll go through the 10, and then uh, okay. I'll, I'll, we, we can hit some of the ones that you find interesting or that I find interesting, and uh, we'll go from there. But, you know, at least, um, it, you know, it's a business book. So, you know, it's, uh, you, you, can, you can read the summary, you can read the, 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 the additional text, or you can go deeper. But, so here are the 10 trends, and, and then we'll, I guess we'll, we'll go through from there. One, sure. um, despite what I think a lot of people thought, you know, I, and uh, I think when um, – when the new administration came into power, there was this, a lot of conversation out there that you know the uh, the regulatory environment in the financial services would sort of uh, recede back to you know 1973 or even 1873 for that matter, and that really has not happened in the in the world of financial services regulations. There's not been that much uh, changes in regulation at all, and what we are actually seeing is is an, is stepped up enforcement and examination activity consistent with levels that we saw under the previous administration. So this idea that the SEC is going away, that there's not financial regulation, that the Dodd-Frank Act is getting repealed is, you know, for lack of a better term, fake news, and that the SEC continues to uh, examine and, and bring enforcement cases at a, at a very high level. So that, that's trend one. Um, another big trend we're seeing is the focus on senior executives being held individually accountable for the wrongdoing alleged uh, to have occurred at their firms, you know the SEC and, and to a, another extent the Department of Justice, looking to bring cases directly against uh, senior executives. That's two. Third big trend is um, various service providers in the industry being held accountable for the actions of their clients. Service providers like uh, fund administrators and auditors and lawyers and accountants, etc. And this sort of goes back to. For those that are a little older out there, the SNL crisis when you know Judge Sporkin famously asked, you know, where were all the lawyers and accountants? Well, 
the SEC is trying to hold those folks accountable. So that, that would be three. Four, um, compliance programs. Uh, every firm in the investment industry has to have their own compliance programs. Well, the early cases were all about, do you have a compliance program? Now the SEC is really looking hard at how good those compliance programs are, and, and what I call flimsy compliance programs um, are, are, being, uh, are being questioned. Um, the fifth trend is the fiduciary duty. You hear a lot of news about that. What is this fiduciary standard? Um, and without getting too inside baseball on this, uh, the SEC is really has imposed, despite what you hear about fiduciary standard for brokers, through enforcement cases, the SEC are, real, uh, are really imposing what I'll call a super fiduciary standard on investment advisors. The sixth revolves around private equity. Private equity came under SEC supervision back in 2012 when the Dodd-Frank became a, became a law. And you know, the, 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 their regulatory status is really changing um, their business practices, and, and they're, they're struggling through that. Seven, threat is cybersecurity and the protection of customer information. Um, we could probably do you know, f- you know 10 hours of, of podcast time <laughs> on cybersecurity alone. Yeah. Eight, is about, is about right. Eight is about marketing and how the SEC and FINRA have really uh, put, the, put the bit on, uh, on the marketing horse, and are tr- they're really trying to rein in what people say about financial products. Nine is about, all about whistleblowers. The whistleblower program came in around the time of Dodd-Frank, this idea that anybody could sort of snitch on their employers or competitors if they see financial services wrongdoing. Uh, that, that program has you know, ballooned, and it has really affected uh, compliance and the investment industry. And finally, number 10 is about FINRA, or as a lot of people in the industry have started calling them, FINRA, because of the, uh, the level of fines they have, uh, have put on, uh, on the industry, and, and they've really emerged as an enforcement power. So th- those, are the, those are the 10, um, and I think depending on, uh, on where you are in the industry, any one of those is, is probably affecting you. Yeah. So, okay, my favorite of those is the flimsy compliance programs. Yep. And the, and the whole maybe this notion of creating this culture of, of compliance at your firms. Sure. Do you want to talk about that one, or do you have a sure. different favorite? Sure. You know, what's what's interesting about compliance is um, is the, the, the sort of the the distinction between um, what people say and what they do. So, you know, if you ask ask any um, C level executive, is compliance important to you? What are they going to say? They're going to say, "Well, of course, it's very important to me." Um, you know, the compliance is first and foremost. We never cross those lines. I mean, you, you hear the same the same talk. But then when you dig deeper into what exactly it is they're doing, you find out that there's a lot of things that are not being done. Um, and and wh- the way it, So fundamentally, you see a lot of firms, what I'll say, are, are talking the talk of compliance, but they're not walking the walk of compliance. Um, so a good example of that, uh, Elizabeth, and, and, and you know, it's, it's, it's a business, right? Um, we're talking financial services. We're talking a business, business function. And one, one thing I, I see is, you know, where you, you see firms not sort of walking the walking the walk is how much they spend on compliance. Because um, really, what gets what really is focused on when you cut through all the the rhetoric is where firms spend their money. And you you start to look at firms, and we say this all see this all the time. All right, you say you're really interested in compliance. How much of your your resources are you allocating? To the compliance function, and what we find is very often it's it's de minimis, really. And you know we've done a lot of work, we've done some research, and some of this some of this is hard research based on third parties that have done it, and some of it's just anecdotal. But you know we tell firms, look, if you're not spending five percent of your revenue, five percent, which seems very modest, 
But if you're not spending 5% of your revenue on compliance infrastructure, including employees, technology, et cetera, you're probably not spending enough. And it's interesting, Elizabeth, we get two responses from that. People at the biggest firms, the biggest sort of blue chip firms, and when I use that number, they all always say, that's all, 5%? Well, that seems kind of low. Um, at the smaller firms, I hear just the opposite. 5%, you're out of your mind. It's way too much. <laughs> so it, so I, I suspect that's probably the right number. Um, and the 5% benchmark is not something that is um, necessarily what you should spend. It's just a starting point. You may say that you know our business is not very risky. It's not very complicated. Maybe we should spend 4% or 3% or whatever. Or your business might be very complicated. You should spend more. But I think the point is, if you're a, a firm that has, you know, $20 million in revenue and $5 billion in, in assets that you manage, and the extent of your compliance program is your CFO doing a once-a-month compliance meeting, you're probably not doing enough. And that's, that's the reality. And, now, and there have been several SEC enforcement cases on that basis where the SEC has gone in and said they haven't used that 5% number, but they have uh, brought cases where the firm just simply was not spending enough resources. And the evidence of that was, well, the compliance function asked for more resources, and the, and the CEO specifically said no until we get more revenues. Or situations where it was clear that there was, there was just no way that the compliance staff that they had could, de- could handle all the work that was going on. So th- that's, a, you know, that, that's some areas where, you know, right up front, is your compliance program sufficient? Are you spending enough money? So that, that's one area. I think so, – so, Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I, no, I don't – I, I can keep going. Go ahead. <laughs> no. Well, it's, I mean, it's a, I think it's a really hot topic because people are wondering what to expect um, in, you know, in – in those, you know, what are we going to get examined? If we are going to get examined, what's going to happen? What are the deficiencies? You know, all, all those things come into play. So I, what about getting ahead of it? And I don't know what it is exactly, but basically <laughs> 5% of your yeah. spend. But what are you watching for? What's, like, what's some best advice you could give to a CCO maybe administering a compliance program? Or what do you see most often as some of the d- compliance deficiencies? You know, it's a there you go. <laughs> yeah. Back well, at you. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna even take a I'm gonna go a step further. I'm gonna go a step Please. up. So we we talked about allocating resources. So you're, you're the you're the CEO of a, of an investment firm or financial service firm. Okay. Uh, I I know. All right. I'll allocate money. I got that. Now what's next? Well, the next thing is to hire a competent chief compliance officer, which sounds really really simple, but I can't tell you um, how many firms I come to, I, I that come across my desk. That the CCO really is just not uh, does not have the background, the regulatory background, to do this kind of work. When is, very often they'll, they'll have uh, the, the CCO is, you know, the, someone who uh, you know didn't make the management meeting. You know, the CFO was sick that day, so uh, she got t- tagged with being the CCO as well, and she may have no idea that she, you know about these regulatory issues. So we call it the dual hat model, where someone who's not a regulatory professional ends up becoming the CCO. And I really implore firms, and there's a, there's a whole bunch of cases out there where the SEC brought an action against a firm because the CCO was clearly not qualified to do the job. And I don't mean not smart enough. I mean, that people get, get confused. Oh, you know, I'm a smart person. I can figure it out. And what I say to people in the investment industry, particularly because since so many are portfolio managers, you wouldn't ask me to manage your portfolio. Why, would, why do you think you can do compliance? 
I wrote a whole book on compliance trends, and this book is a couple hundred pages. It could have been a thousand pages if I had to want to go deeper. It, it's a profession like anything else. It's, it's, a, it's a knowledge base. You need to hire someone who knows what they're doing. So you need to hire a good person. And, and, if you're not, and, and there's really, in my view, two ways of doing that. One is, obviously, you can hire a person in-house, an employee, or there's firms like my firm, which provides a CCO on an outsourcing basis to firms. I mean, we do this for a living. So by all means, you need to hire someone who knows what they're doing. So those are two areas. You need to allocate resources. You need to hire a CCO. And then what's next? Well, you, you leverage that knowledge base. You need to create a, what, I, what I call the constitution of compliance, uh, which really is the compliance manual. Those are the, the rules of the road that your firm is supposed, supposed to follow, and a lot of work should go into that document. Um, our compliance manuals can run 150, 200 pages addressing all the various areas to avoid any kind of regulatory risk. So that's a big part of it. Get a good compliance manual. And I think the next phase is you need to test that. So one big part of the compliance uh, infrastructure across the industry, which is required by the, the, the rules, is you have to annually test your compliance program um, through various kinds of testing. Now, testing can include everything from you know, uh, sampling transactions, you can interview people, you can review documents. It's due diligence is the best way to describe it. And making sure that the, that 200-page manual is being affected as, as, as it's written. And uh, then we re prepare a report on that. So getting a, a really good compliance manual, getting someone knows what they're doing, testing that every year um, goes a real long way. And then I would add to that, you need to train the employees and create systems to make sure they comply. And then, of course, you got to make sure nothing leaves the firm marketing materials that have not been reviewed by, by, by compliance. There's more to compliance programs, but those are some of the that, – that's, that's the basic start of the infrastructure to get going in the right direction. And if you don't do that, for example, you know, we see it a lot where a lot of that isn't being done, what's the consequence? Well, um, there, there's a couple different consequences depending on your view of it. Um, certainly the more obvious ones, the SEC comes in or FINRA comes in or the CFTC comes in, and they, they, uh, they do an examination. They find something's wrong. So in the most lightest way, they, they could give you what's called the deficiency letter. So they send you a letter. And then you have to respond to it, saying you're going to fix this, fix that, or fix the other thing. Now that's not a public document, but excuse me. But what that the problem with that is, you are now on their radar. So if you say you're going to fix something, and they come two years later and you don't fix it, worse things will happen, and we'll talk through that. Um, but also that deficiency letter and how you remedy that very often goes to clients, Those particularly institutional clients will ask you, all right, can I see your deficiency letter? Because they want to know. What, what's happened. So you want to keep those deficiencies to a minimum. If it's something particularly bad or something you haven't fixed, it can go to what's it can go to enforcement. The enforcement division can file a public lawsuit against you uh, to bring civil penalties. And civil penalties could, are monetary. They can go for restitutions. Uh, they can bar senior executives from the industry. Uh, a parade of horribles that can, that can really happen. It's also one of the reasons, Elizabeth, that I hate the dual hat model because I'd hate to see a, you know, the founder of a firm who decided to take the C, uh, CCO role get barred from the industry because of a compliance problem because he, did, he or she didn't know what, what they were doing. Um, so there, there, there's that. There's enforcement cases. In, in super egregious situations, if the action uh, rises to a criminal, the SEC can refer it 
the case of the Justice Department, who can bring criminal proceedings and put people in jail. So that's obviously very bad. Um, yeah. But but there's there's actually the the bigger issue really is is are, are, are twofold, and I think they're, they're they're sort of softer problems, but actually more damaging. One is reputation. So once your firm has a public enforcement action against it. Um, uh, I can tell you that any time you're in an RFP situation, your competitors are going to pull that out of the drawer and show it to the potential client, and that's going to be very damaging. You're going to have to, you know, explain. You're going to have some explaining to do if if it doesn't knock you out of the, the the pitch to begin with. And I think the other part of it is, and that reputational hit, you know, hurts the ability to get employees and, and everything else. What's the old story? I mean, it takes forever to build a, a reputation, and it takes an instant to, to get rid of to lose it. And I think the um, the other side of it is once the SEC sort of gets you in their radar and gets you in their sights, um, they they you become their best friend. You know, you're going to see them every year. Um, I have I, I've come in in situations where you know the SEC has been at a client for over a year, um, at, and continuing with ongoing um, uh, requests. So it's um yeah. it's something to be avoided at all costs. It, it's enforcement actions may not kill your business, but um, they will in an action will significantly debilitate it. So somebody um, gave us a question while you were speaking, and it was great information. And I, I like this question: Do you see the SEC staff make that resource comment that you were talking about in exit interviews or um, findings letters, or like Absolutely. a findings letter? Absolutely. Okay. They, they won't use a number, but they will. Uh, they very often will say. Um, you know, you, you, this function looks significantly under-resourced. Uh, there's been several cases, for instance, in the uh, anti-money laundering context. Um, all the anti-money laundering uh, rules came into effect after 9-11, uh, really to combat terrorism for the most part and, dr- and drug trafficking. But there's a lot of diligence that needs to be done when you bring a client on to make sure the money being invested is not the product of, of money laundering or drug trafficking. And it's just it's a lot of processing. And when you think about it, if you're a very, very large retail firm, the amount of paperwork that needs to be reviewed is significant. And there's been several cases where the, that function, which is significantly understaffed, and the SEC has brought cases on that basis. But yes, I have definitely seen exit interviews, deficiency letters, and cases where the SEC specifically cites under-resourcing. I love the way you talk about compliance because it makes it so easy to understand. Um, and it can be such a to to many people can be like such a complex like I don't get this moment and so thank you for breaking it down a little bit so, into more digestible bits of information cuz um we're getting comments that this is super helpful so Good. thank you for being on the show and the next question somebody just tweeted me um is about uh, they're in an examination or they're going to be and they want to know what to expect. <laughs> they're going to come knocking on the door. What's what's that mean for them and what's going to happen? Yeah. Um, so a couple of things on exams and and it's it's um, it's an intimidating process and I think one thing to remember uh, first and foremost is the government may not be your enemy but they are certainly not your friend. Um, those examiners, uh, they have the ability to, to subpoena documents. Uh, they have the ability to turn the case at their discretion over to the enforcement division. They have the ability to turn cases over the, to the Justice Department. Um, so you need to take it very seriously. You need to be very careful with your responses and how you interact with them. So 
I, I, I often say you should treat the examiner sort of like a police officer that pulled you over for speeding. It's no joke. Um, they are not out to get you. I, I, I really I give I give the SEC folks and I've dealt I've dealt with a lot of them, a lot of offices, the absolute benefit of the doubt. They are not out to get you, but their job is to uncover wrongdoing and to protect investors, and they take that job very seriously. And you should take their you should take the exam very seriously. So first and foremost, get help. You you should never go through an SEC exam exam without being sherpaed, if you will, by a uh, a, a regulatory professional that's been through it before. Um, and I, I, I think that's really important. Whether it's a firm like ours, your lawyer, whoever, someone knows how to deal with the SEC and can interpret their, their requests. You can also think about it as it's almost like an IRS audit. Would you go to an IRS audit without hiring, you know, bringing an accountant or someone who's been through an IRS audit before? You? No, you wouldn't because there's, there's danger. You could say the wrong thing. Uh, you, could, you could say in a way that would be misinterpreted. You can misinterpret their questions. So treat them with, uh, with respect on two levels that they have a lot of power. Um, but also they're, you know, they're human beings they're, they're trying to do a job. And I will tell you, most examiners that I know would rather not find wrongdoing. They'd rather see a clean firm that has an excellent compliance program and gets them out of their, out of the office as quickly as possible. That really is their interest. They, they would rather see a good program than a bad program in my view. In my, based on my experience, I, I, I've never seen anyone that, you know, that they want to, they want to sit in your office for no reason. Um, so that's one. Yeah. So get some help. Um, what you're going to get, you're going to get a very long uh, document request list. They're going to ask for a bunch of materials before they arrive. Um, and again, I would get help in how to respond because some of the questions that they ask and the requests they make are, are not crystal clear as to exactly what they're looking for. And you can call them and, and, or, or communicate with them and ask them to clarify and ask them to limit scope and, and, and that sort of thing. You can certainly do that. Um, they will then come on site generally. Not all exams are on site. They generally come on site. Uh, the fir first day is uh, usually a day to get to know each other. You uh, descri describe your firm. They talk about what they're going to be looking for. And one thing you really want to do is make sure that all requests, both document requests and interview requests, come through one central person. You don't want the examiners accessing multiple people and walking around your firm. It should be a focused review. Um, and then, uh, and then that you can help get them the, the, the information and, and people that they need to talk to. Um, so, and I think it's really important that you respond quickly um, and you respond accurately. Um, I don't know is an okay response. Um, yes and no are an okay response. You don't have to keep talking. You know, it's, it's, think of it like a deposition. Answer the question, but only answer the question they ask. And I think uh, if they have a document delivered, if you don't, if you don't have the document, it's okay. Say we don't have it. Um, a terrible mistake I see people make is yes, you ask for a document, you don't have it, and then you create it. They know that, and they get very upset by that. That you sort of create documents on the fly as if they existed. Um, be truthful. It, it's very, very important. Um, and uh, if you don't know the answer, it's okay to say I don't know. And if, if you disagree with something, it's okay to bring in. Uh, uh, Help, bring in help to, to, to have that conversation. And then usually they, they'll be there, in our experience, anywhere from a couple of days to a week. It sometimes goes longer. Uh, you should ask for an exit interview. They will generally tell you some of the issues they're looking at. Um, and then sometime within the next 180 days, you'll get a, get a deficiency letter. Sometimes you get a letter that says everything's fine. There are no deficiencies at this time. So that's fairly rare. About 10% of cases get that. But uh, you will probably get a deficiency letter, and then you'll respond to that within 30 days as to how you'll remedy the problem. 
In a rare situation, and we like to keep these as rare as possible, uh, the issues cannot be remedied through response to deficiencies, but they go to the enforcement division, and then it becomes litigation and investigation. And that's all. That's all. That's a story for another day. Do you ever see them? This is probably a little naive and very best ever you like. But do you ever see the SEC say something like, "That's the best compliance program I've ever seen." World, look at this one, or anything like that, or is it all just pretty confidential and low key? You're not going to get any pats on the head from the regulator. Um, okay. There's there's never a win. There's just lesser losses, if you will. You know, you, you know, they're right. They're, you, you know, it's 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 uh, they're there to find stuff. They're not they're not there to tell you everything's great. Um, okay. Everything. For, I've been doing this a long time, Elizabeth. Like I said, I've been practicing law for 25 years. I've been running a business for, this business for 15 years. I view a victory as if they're out of your, out of my client's firm within within three to four business days. That's phenomenal. That means they got what they needed. Um, there's nothing huge to see. Uh, what, what it? Move right along. Nothing to see here. You know, that's that, that's what yeah. we're hoping for. Um, and if we do, we have gotten letters which say there are no deficiencies, and we literally, you know, break the, break open the champagne when that happens. But they they never uh, they never say this is great. No, there's there's never any positive comments, so don't expect that. They're not like I said. Okay. They're 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 investigators. Not a soft so approach. Like yeah. you think you're great, and here's a few things you can do to be better. But have a nice day. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean. <laughs> yeah, no, it doesn't. I will tell okay. you, there's there's te- there's tenor. Like, um, I there, there's no doubt that um, this in the, this uh, group of examiners is a little more friendly than they were five years ago. But I would say that's personally friendly. I don't see them being that much different when it comes to the substance that they're looking for and the deficiencies they raise. No. They just they're a little nicer when they come in uh, for the most part. <laughs> Um, what about marketing and advertising? Because that seems to be a, a huge focus when in examinations. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's I I call it the canary in the coal mine of examinations. So, and the reason I say that is it's one of the first things that the examiners will look at is the marketing materials. And uh, you know, essentially, if your marketing materials are not good, and, and, and if you've been doing this long enough. You, you you know what the marketing materials should look like. For instance, they make all kinds of crazy claims, and there's no you know proper disclosures of what the returns are, or they, you know they they don't net out the fees, or they do real basic stuff wrong. Um, the SEC knows, or FINRA, if it's FINRA, knows that you know there's probably a lot more wrong in that compliance infrastructure. They don't necessarily see good marketing materials as an indication of a good compliance program. But bad compliance materials, as I said, they're canary in a coal mine that there's there's more problems going on. So you want to get that stuff right. And the reason, from their perspective, it's 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 sort of an easy thing to get right. The rules, you know, they've been sort of in existence for a long time. There's a lot of a lot of stuff out there. There's a lot of people out there that know these rules. Um, there's not a lot of creativity in financial products marketing. So you know, you should be able to get this stuff right. And if you're getting it wrong. Um, you know, it's a real problem. And, and you, you see all kinds of things. Um, the, the one that I see a lot of that I, I really warn against is what I call, what they call out their hypothetical backtested performance. And what that's, it's a fancy way of saying, you know, it's a firm that's too new to have real performance. So they basically take how they manage money and they apply it hypothetically in a backtested environment to see what would have happened had they been managing money. And, you know, it, 
just me explaining it that way, just it just sounds wrong, doesn't it? Right? It just yeah, sounds yeah, like something you shouldn't do, it, right? Um, and, and and when I explain to that, that's people look at me. But you know, you, the response you get is, "Well, we weren't busy. We got to sell something." And this idea of hypothetical performance is not, you know, per se illegal, but in our experience, the SEC basically says you have to disclose it and include enough disclosure to make sure that it's not misleading. And you know, what ends up happening is in every exam we've been in, there's never enough disclosure. No matter how much disclosure you have, there's never enough disclosure. So our firm view is you should not use hypothetical backtested performance data. And, and the client will always say, well, we've only been in business for a year. How are we going to sell anything? And, and my response is, believe me, uh, large investors particularly know what hypothetical data is, and they're not giving it any credit anyway. So you're not really getting much. And we, we also have a uh, a, a sort of a line in the sand about any statements you make in your marketing. If it takes more than two sentences of disclosure, you, you probably shouldn't say it because it's, it's probably misleading. So th- those are those are a couple areas of marketing. But there's other stuff that's out there. I mean, you see all kinds of things. Um, target performances. You know, what we our firm should, our funds should do this. Again, not per se illegal, but it's hard to dis- include enough disclosure to, to sort of hedge your bets if something goes wrong. Um, people inflating their credentials. A lot of bunch of famous cases about oh I went to Harvard and then you find out they didn't go to Harvard or <laughs> they got thrown out of Harvard. We just heard like somebody the other day uh, say they uh, spoke at Harvard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I mean, like, you know, you, you see they're on that, campus so. talking, but not in anything Harvard sponsored. Yeah. Like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> I, 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 I knew a woman. I knew a woman once at Harvard. Um, yeah, and, and then <laughs> yeah. or um, you know, you see that kind of stuff, or you right. see. Um, Net, you know, you see gross performance data, you know, where they don't net out the fees, you, you know, um, they, they cherry pick time periods to make it look good. Um, another really one that people get frustrated is called past specific recommendations. And I, I, I call it, it's, 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 it's my uncle, it's my uncle Nick rule. You know, uncle Nick always tells me about, um, whenever time I see him at Christmas, he tells me about his, uh, his stock picks that were great, but he never tells me about the stock picks that weren't so great. And uh, that's kind of what the prohibition on past specific recommendations. You're not allowed to say, hey, we, we were good here and uh, without showing all the picks that you made. So I called my, my Uncle Nick rule. So, you know, those are a couple of the areas that the SEC can really pick apart very easily when they come in for an exam. How about social media? I'm going to crank open the can of worms here <laughs> a little yeah. bit more because yeah. um, I I love social media. You know, over the past 15 years of using social media for Best Ever You combined with, like, my past experience in financial services, sometimes you look at some of the stuff that's out into the universe with financial services, and it's cringeworthy. And I'm just <laughs> wondering how that's going and if they're, are going, if they're going to make some changes to the social media rules. You know, what, what do you – yeah, I'll just be quiet. You get, yeah, <laughs> no, social it, media. Well, listen, it's a, it's a, I, and I love social media too. And if you go out there, you'll see me all over the place. I, I think it's a great, it's a great tool, yeah, and it's fun. really, it's Hashtag democratized communication, Superman. really. Yeah, right. No, I love it. Um, but yeah. so he, there's there's a bunch of issues, and, and keep in mind, the SEC is a regulator, and they are they they tend to follow innovations, not get in front of it. Um, I've been around long enough that I was, you know, doing this kind of work when, you know, websites first came into being. You know, my kids can't believe I when I actually started work there was no email. They have a hard time even conceptualizing <laughs> the world like that. For the first time the other day, I'm like, oh no. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, you know, and, right. Uh, but so I was around. Um, I was working at a company when people started doing websites, and the SEC came out with statements that websites were illegal and they were potentially misleading. And and it's like, well, come on, guys, it's going to happen. 
and I think they have a similar view of social media. They're, they're, the, the regular tends to be fairly negative on the use of social media, but it is what it is. I mean, it's not going away. It's a very, mu- very much a part of our modern society. So there's a couple things to, you have to worry about um, on social. One is, from the company perspective, and I, 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 this, I have a hard time with. Sometimes people forget that what you put out on social media the same rules apply as what you put out in hard copy or by email. Those same marketing rules apply. You can't use hypothetical backtested data. You can't use passive recommendations. You can't use gross performance. You can't you know, use target returns. It's, it's the same information. So from that perspective, companies got to lock down what people say on social media to make sure they don't you know, say something that's not approved. But then there's the individuals. This is where it gets really hard, Elizabeth. Oh, yeah. every, every, every individual employee has their own social media accounts. And, and in this day and age, the, 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 um, the break between personal and professional, it just isn't what it used to be. We all, it's sort of a gig economy. We're all working and socializing together. And people don't think that, oh, that's my personal account, not my business account. And people say things about their companies that the companies themselves couldn't say. So you get this whole problem with how do you make sure that your employees are not saying things they shouldn't, um, and which which so what, what do you do? Well, you you have a, a, a policy. This is what the SEC wants. You put a policy in place. You cannot use your personal social media accounts to talk about business. All right. Well, yeah. Okay. We can all salute that, but is that realistic? What percentage of our lives are spent at work? Um, it's it's a very hard thing to do. You think about LinkedIn, which people use as a business tool and sometimes as a recruiting tool. What can and can't you say about your employer? So that's one part of it. But then how do you monitor that? So there are some companies out there that can you know can monitor Facebook and, and LinkedIn and Twitter. But okay, what about private chat rooms? Um, what about Bloomberg chat and, and all the things that go on there? So that monitoring of these these different platforms becomes very complicated. So the, the SEC. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> I was I was thinking about just if if you have a, an employee and they have Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Snapchat, and throw one other one in there for fun. Mm-hmm. I keep thinking about all of those platforms also have private messaging systems behind That's right. them. That's right. It's nuts. I mean, I don't even know how you would monitor that. Well, and and I I, I this uh, this sort of this sort of gets my ire up a little bit because <laughs> me too. Um, I know. Um, <laughs> the SEC, up. <laughs> yeah, well, because I, I do compliance for a living, and the SEC came out with this sort of no this risk alert uh, a few months ago, which basically said, "Hey, compliance officers, you got it's up to you to monitor all these social media accounts." And I was like, "Well, that's not fair. That's just not fair. How do you put it on the CCO to do that?" And this is a much bigger issue than just the CCO needs to monitor all. Every social media account. So what are you saying? If someone did, you know, said something wrong in a private chat room and I couldn't find out that I'm personally liable for that, you know, what I what I have said is I think the SEC is really going to need to take a step back and and do what they do in big policy issues, which is get an industry roundtable together that includes both financial services and media executives and social media executives and figure out how to reconcile the, the regulatory rules with the realities of modern-day communication. It's, it's a real problem, and, uh, yeah. and it's, not, it's not going away, and nor, nor should it. I, I think um, they're, they're great tools, and uh, people are going to continue to use them. Having said that, I will tell you this. Um, a lot of recent cases, particularly in the insider trading environment, when people want to they, – they've been using – private social media chats to communicate material non-public information and that's a that's a real problem that uh, firms are really concerned about and trying to figure out how to monitor 
what seems um, baffling to me is a mom, you know, mom of four boys here and just going into user mode of like <laughs> the, all these various things and thinking about it from a user standpoint, like gaming systems even. Everything's right. live on headsets. Or, you know, it's, it's the kids all talking to the kids at night after school or whatever. And that's kids, but the kids are growing up. Oh, no, that's and right. Adults, I mean, you know, everybody's getting on, on no, game. No, that, that, that's whole right. Other... Yeah, ahead, I know, I know one great thing about your show is, is it, it draws a sort of a multi generational audience. And, and one of the things that I'm really looking at look, I, I'm, I'm, I've been around a little too long. And I, as a dinosaur, I, I'm pretty good at social media, but, uh, you know, that's a big caveat. You know, I, I, we, we're, we're looking, we bring in people that uh, are in a different generation that are, you know, in their 20s and 30s. And I'm, I'm talking to them. I'm like, how do I deal with this? What should I do? I, you know, how do you monitor Facebook? You know, what should we be looking for? What does it mean to like? Uh, is, that a, is that a testimonial? And they're really helping me do a better job as a compliance officer. Because I, I got to tell you, and I, I mean no disrespect, I'm, I'll just say I'm over 50. If you're over 50, you do not understand all of social media. You might understand the basics. You may understand how to use Twitter. You, but you do not understand all the uses. And, and you just you hit it right, Elizabeth. You know, everything from gaming systems to cryptocurrency platforms uh, have messaging. And you, it's just you, you may, you're going to need some help from people that, you know, think about social media really as a, as a, as a primary means of communication. Yeah. Do you know what just happened in our household? We canceled cable. Oh my goodness. And we needed our 17-year-old to help us cancel cable. Right. Because it involves a Roku. I hope I said that right. And yep. YouTube TV and Netflix and all this stuff. And it's wild. We're sitting here using our cell phones, which are new, by the way, also because we switched, as our TV remotes. Amazing, but I know that it? doesn't have anything to exactly to do with compliance, but it speaks to the generational comment that you make. No, it absolutely does. And actually, uh, and, and I don't know if you want to get into this now. We, we, we talked about cryptocurrency a few minutes ago. Please, um, yeah. You know, yeah, you know, it's all about gaming systems. I am not a gamer. I, I've played a few in my life. But, you know, when I explained uh, what cryptocurrency is and digital tokens are to my 17-year-old who does play video games, she's like, oh, yeah, I get it. You know, that's, <laughs> no. you know. Yeah, I told mine you, it all you know, the time or whatever. You're like, what? Um, and whereas my wife, who's closer to my age, who is a, you know, a former tax lawyer, when I tell her that I think uh, digital tokens and cryptocurrency are going to replace credit cards and hard currency, she literally cannot get, it around, get her head around it. Um, and that's a good example. The world is changing, and, and I think that's a good example of it. And, uh, you know, you, you talk about gaming, and, and people sort of laugh about it, but, you know, the, the gaming area has been a, a sort of a, a, a flashpoint of innovation, and uh, crypto is a piece of that, and so is communications. How do you regulate that? Um, you know, that's uh, – I'll let you know if I've ever elected Congress. Um, you know, I, I think <laughs> – yeah, right um, – I, I – I think well, there's there's a there's a big question right now. One of the big questions out there, and there's a division among the courts, whether or not digital tokens and digital token offerings are securities and securities offerings. Because if they are, they're going to be regulated by the SEC, and they're going to fall into all the securities regulation. And um, we can get into the unintended consequences of that. I think that would be very bad. It could be it could be very bad for innovation. It may be good for, for safety. Um, or th there are courts that are saying that uh, digital tokens are not securities, and there's, there's a whole 
long line of authority as to what is secure and not security. And I have predicted it's it's uh, that this year I think the Supreme Court is going to come to a ruling on whether or not uh, digital tokens are securities and 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 what that's going to mean for regulation. So that that is going to be very interesting. Um, the the problem we're having, and I think this is this is really the um, the uh, the tug of war. I was at a conference recently where there's some real tech guys from the Bay Area talking about you know the growth of digital tokens and how people are sharing information and they want to avoid regulation. Which and I, I they were younger guys and I pulled them aside and I, I said I think you guys got it all wrong. I said, you know, if you may, if you look at the mutual fund business, um, which is the most highly regulated financial product probably in the world and also has what trillions of assets it was that regulation that made people safe to put money in mutual funds and i think only significant regulation is going to let people see crypto as something other than the wild west they want to know their money's protected and only regulation yeah. can do that so i think regulation is absolutely critical to the cryptocurrency market for it to, to really thrive and become something and i also believe that um, there's going to be a, there's not going to be, there may be 8 zillion digital tokens, but it's going to, it's going to start to, certain ones are going to be used for certain things. I think you're going to start to see that in the marketplace. I think the question becomes, Elizabeth, how do you regulate that? Is it regulated more like, like banking, like a currency? You bring like a Federal Reserve kind of, or is it a commodity like the CFTC to regulate it? Or is it a security where you, you that whole layer of, of securities regulation disclosure? I don't really have a great answer for that. I'm, that's uh, above my pay grade. But I do think it's it will be regulated. It needs to be regulated. The question is is how and frankly where because digital tokens are actually much more internationally based than any other kind of currency. So we'll see where that goes. And what about the money laundering aspect of cryptocurrency? Yeah, you know, I, I'm I'm less of a I'm less of a scaredy cat about that than a lot of other people are. Um, it is much easier to to launder hard currency than it is to launder digital currency, which where there at least is a digital footprint. The, the standard the standards are fairly similar. Um, you know, there are money laundering concerns. There's absolutely money laundering concerns, but that that's I don't think it's a di- necessarily a different concern in crypto um, than it is in other areas. Like I said, it's you know people don't worry about hard currency. You can it's the easiest thing in the world to launder. Because it's you know it's not traceable. What do you think about that? Um, I don't know if you saw this or not, but you know the 190 million got that got locked up because the guy passed away and his password was so encrypted and all yeah, this I stuff. Yeah, I did see that. Yeah. Is that an example of we need regulation? Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, uh, you know, it, it's I I, th- I think also the. the, the the opponents of of this kind of technological advancement um, are always going to point to a problem here, a problem there. You're going to have issues. Um, you know, when when people first started doing doing funds, there were issues. Uh, if you look at the, what preceded the Investment Company Act and the Investment Advisors Act, there was all kinds of frauds before regulation came in. And then they they created regulation, and they've been creating new regulation for years. Um, yeah, that, that's an issue. Um, but, you know, if you think about it, is it any more of an issue than, you know, uh, uh, you know an old oil baron, you know, uh, forgetting, uh, you know, where he buried his cash in his backyard? Is it really that different? Um, so we can regulate our way through that. I, I think uh, it's, that's, that's a function of working out. The, but it's going to take work. 
and it's going to take evolution. And it may be not even in our lifetimes, Elizabeth. It may, may, may happen down the road, but I, I think it will happen. Yeah. So Bitcoin goes with cryptocurrency. Mm-hmm. Let's go to blockchain because okay. Bitcoin is not blockchain. Uh, no, and, and I am not. I am in no way a crypto or a blockchain expert. Blockchain is the thing that we're, we're, that gets recorded, so you know how much you own and how much other people have, and, and it records all the transactions. That's what the blockchain is. That's the ledger system that keeps track of everything. You know, and I don't know. I, yeah. I'm not really sure why people freak out about this. I mean, it's no different than a than a, a digital banking system. I mean, when you use a credit card online and, and you see all these numbers on your your web account, how is that any different? Um, but for whatever reason, the people have this sort of skepticism of blockchain and security. Um, you know, so I, I think it's, it's really no different. It's just keeping it's a it's a ledger system. It's keeping track of of, of your ownership, and the you know blockchain blockchain is used for for digital tokens and and various kinds of digital tokens. And they're still working through. There's a lot of a lot of kinks in the system that they're still working through. Um, security being a big one of them. But uh, I, they'll they'll figure it out. Um, you know. We all got comfortable that you know our, our, how we how do we know that for instance the dollar bill in our hand is worth a dollar? There's not there's actually not gold behind that anymore. And those days are long gone. It's it's a system of trust. At, at the end of the day, it's trusting that 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 dollar will buy a dollar's worth of goods. Well, you know, digital tokens and cryptocurrencies will get to that point. We're just not quite there yet. It has been it has been fundamentally accepted across the uh, across the uh, economy yet, but it, it'll get there. So if I'm a CCO and I'm listening to this, is this a massive concern that I need to, you know, not sleep at night about, or should I worry about my compliance program being stellar? Uh, <laughs> What's mean, more crypto- important? About cryptocurrency or generally speaking? Just generally speaking, you know, how important is cryptocurrency and Bitcoin and all these new things coming to a CCO? You know, is it something to lose sleep over, um, or, or is it better to spend our efforts you know, kind of keeping an eye on it and doing other things. So I, I would say a couple things on that. One is, I don't don't lose sleep over it. Um, I, I think at this point, the SEC has not approved any cryptocurrency funds. So a lot of the the uh, financial services offering, at least in the United States, have been sort of slowed down because the SEC is not approving anything. And then there's this cloud as to whether or not. Uh, digital tokens or security. So it, there's a lot of uncertainty. So not much is happening there yet. Um, and, and very few financial services firms are, are I don't know if any, are actually um, transacting in crypto. I, I don't. I just don't think it's happening yet. So that I, I'm not sure it's a huge compliance worry just yet. Um, but I will say this. You should learn about it. And I don't think you need to learn the ins and outs of how the technology works. That's not really that relevant. But you should understand the basics of blockchain, what a digital token is, what Bitcoin is, because it's one of the most famous, uh, one of the most well-known um, digital tokens. Um, I think it's important to understand that. And yeah, right now, when, you, when, people are in, when people are investing in Bitcoin, what they're really doing is a form of currency speculating. It's really no different than sort of speculating that the... Uh, you know, the pound is going to go up or down. It's just the pound's variation isn't as significant as Bitcoin because Bitcoin is, you know, is not as widely held and is not accepted everywhere. So I, you, you, it's, you need to know what it is. You need to know how it works. And I think there's time to learn that. There's some great pieces or some, 
There's some good law firm articles about it. I, you know, just read read a couple Wall Street Journal pieces about Bitcoin. They'll explain the basics of it, and just get comfortable yeah. with it because I, I, it's it's definitely coming. It's definitely coming. Well, times are changing. <laughs> That's for sure. There's yeah, a sure, lot going sure. on in this industry, and you can just feel the change and and some momentum to it and so forth. Um, it's great. It's great. I, yeah. what that's great. That's why that's why I like doing compliance. Yeah, exactly. Um, one of the things that um, again, I'm I'm in the 50 realm. I, I will say I'm turning 50 this year, and my experience is back with the whole Edgar system, and I admit yep. that. And um, I was one of the people who helped implement the Edgar system across the country with the SEC because um, I worked in Merrill Corporation. We did all that, and a lot of what um, I think about um, is data, mm-hmm. and so while we're kind of on this topic of all these electronic things, I was wondering if you would talk about big data because back then we went from paper to electronic filings, ASCII, then HTML and all this stuff, and they had the data. But they would always complain that they didn't have a great way to analyze it. They did have a very good way to identify, uh, analyze financial data schedules in the Corp Fin world. But this is changing right now. Data yeah. is huge, and they have way more powerful tools. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I mean, it, it's changed the compliance infrastructure and the compliance world completely. I mean, uh, you know, it, we talked earlier in the in, earlier in here we, about testing. So, a good example of because uh, big data is, a, is it's almost too hard to get your head around. But let's take uh, portfolio management. And the securities the firm is buying on behalf of all clients, and and security dispersion, and and performance dispersion against what the the standards should be, you know, without the data, all you can really do is sort of eyeball things and do some sample testing. Now there are technology tools that can run against the portfolio portfolio and point up areas where, um, you know, you, you, the the portfolio manager has sort of gone gone away from the state of mandate, so. It's enabled, uh, it's enabled compliance officers particularly to leverage their resources to actually do better monitoring than they were ever able to do um, with some of these tools. Things like uh, portfolio, uh, best execution around security trading is a good area, um, you know, recalculating performance information. So the big data, the artificial intelligence, the ability to synthesize lots of numbers in a system has really enabled chief compliance officers to do a lot more supervision than they've ever been able to do. Having said that, I don't think it's a panacea. Um, I don't think you can replace the judgment of the compliance officer with the technology tools and the data. Uh, The analogy I use is, yes, you can buy a hammer and a table saw and nails, um, but that doesn't build a house. You still need someone to build the house. And I think the compliance officer sort of sits in that that chair, that uh, she can take the, the, uh, the, all these tools, these technology tools, and use them to implement a great compliance program and testing uh, with the use of, of data, data analytics. Um, and I think it's, it's a great tool. On the other side of it, the SEC is spending lots of money and time in their, in their surveillance efforts using the, all this data that's coming in from the industry in various forms to, uh, to, to you know, seek out wrongdoing and, see, and seek out uh, um, things that, that need to be investigated. So they're doing that, and I think that it, that behooves the compliance officer or the firms to do the same thing to get ready for uh, that examination when the SEC comes in and says, hey, you know, our data analysis suggests that, uh, you know, your performance information 
is misleading because we don't we we can't see it based on uh, based on this data analysis. And then when they come into your firm doing an exam, they're also they're doing a lot of number crunching. So it's it's a great tool um, for both the regulator and the chief compliance officer. But I don't think it's a replacement necessarily for the people that do the work. So totally agree with you on that point. I think you have to have those people to make you know those qualitative types of decisions. I just sorry I wanted to chime in and just say how much I agreed as you were talking no, about. Like, no, yes. <laughs> and, it, and it's good because, you know, there's a lot of, you know, c- compliance gets a bad name in some ways because it sounds like a dreadful sort of way to make a living. And I think when you're doing a lot of number crunching and testing, it, it, it can start to feel that way. But if w- I could tell you what, what we do in the more modern compliances, we do the judgment piece of it. We're, we're, the, we're the ones thinking about what that data should look like and how to address the issues that are flagged out of those systems. We're the ones advising the clients on how to be compliant. And the dreadful work is going to the machines. And I, I think that's going to make for a much more interesting profession going forward. And I think it's why it's growing, frankly. Yeah. Do you think there'll be more like mini sweeps based on data like that the, that the SEC sees and so forth? Do you think there's going to be different, different types of things go on? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, uh, we're seeing that already. We're, we're seeing them come in. Uh, you know, they, they have a stated goal to, um, they being the Office of Compliance Inspections, to do about – uh, to, uh, to examine about 20% of advisors per year. And we're still seeing about 10% of advisors get the traditional exam that we talked about earlier. But you're seeing these sweep exams where they'll come in on, you know, sometimes even on a correspondence or a phone basis, not even come on site, on a specific issue that, and you can tell from the questions they're asking, there's something specific that they are concerned about. So, yeah, the, the short answer to your question is absolutely. We are we're seeing these sweep exams based on various aberrational uh, uh, outcomes that they're finding when they're when they're doing their 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 AI searches and such. So yeah, no, we're definitely seeing that, Elizabeth. And that's with the issuer specific inquiries. Issuer specific inquiries, yes. And sometimes what they'll do is, uh, um, well, here's an example going on right now. The SEC is very focused on mutual fund share classes and the recommendations made by advisors about the, the underlying share classes that uh, they're recommending. And what we're seeing them do is they'll, they'll, they'll follow 12B1 trailers coming from, they'll go into one firm and they'll, they'll, they'll take the, the data about all the 12B1 trailers, then they'll go investigate every firm that receives those 12B1 trailers and ask them how they're recommending share classes. So it's, you see these sort of, these kind of sweeps. This is such a great opportunity to ask you all of these things. <laughs> Thank you. No, that's great. I feel like I've asked that's you like <laughs> you need to have predictions. No, just the yeah. predictions and everything. There's just so much information that you're giving us that's so helpful and it's at a it's at such a nice conversational level and and very great to understand. So I really appreciate that. There. Um, yeah. Do you um, do you have a little bit more time? Do you need to go? What's what's your time frame like? You uh, what, whatever you need. I mean. I, I've been doing this my whole life. It's, it's exciting for me that anyone who cares about compliance, so that's great. <laughs> no, we care very much. Um, I would like to um, shift the conversation slightly to um, the topic of custody. Can, okay. can we do that? Sure. Do you um, – yeah, I mean, I think SEC guidance is sort of getting complicated there. Do you have any suggestions or simple ways to determine <laughs> if an advisor has custody? Um. No, but I, but I will say this: um, uh, we have we we and if the if the SEC ever hears this, and I've been writing about this, this isn't new. They need to redo the custody rule. The custody rule is a is a disaster, um, and it, and I don't mean a disaster as as it's 
purpose, it's a disaster as a piece of uh, regulation. It's way too complicated, way too uh, opaque. Um, there's, I don't know how many pages of FAQs trying to explain this or that. Um, uh, they did a sweep a couple years ago, and it's something like 50% of firms had violated the custody rule. And I would argue that if 50% of your industry is violating the rule, your rule is not very good. You need to, you need to make it clearer. Um, so they need to rewrite the rule. Um, I, I think okay. that's first and foremost. Um, so I, I think some, some general guidance to, if you want to avoid it, if you want to avoid custody, you don't want any situation. And this, I'm, I'm going to oversimplify Elizabeth because the rule is very dense. But if you, you don't want any situation where um, you, as an advisor, as a fiduciary, have the ability to take money out of your client's account for any reason. <laughs> that's bad. Um, uh-huh. Not that you're doing anything bad with it, but if you could take money out, that's a problem. And where you see this is what you know these situations where advisors think they're being helpful. Oh, I'm doing bill paying for my client, or I'm you know I'm managing trust expenses. Um, if you can write checks on your client's account to pay third party expenses, that's a real problem. That's gonna that's gonna throw you into the custody custody world. Um, so th- that's bad. Obviously, there's wrongdoing because the custody rule came out of the whole Madoff scandal, so you didn't have control over assets. Um, but we'll, we'll just put that aside. We're assuming that nobody's trying to, to steal from clients. That's a whole different issue. But any time you can take money out of a client's account, that's a real problem. The other area where people get confused is, is private funds. So if you are the general partner of a private investment partnership, you are deemed to have custody. And we say, well, what does that mean? How, how could I? I don't, have, I don't have the assets that are held at a bank. The SEC's view is a general partner has legal authority to take those assets out. Therefore, they have custody. The good news for private funds is you can solve the problem by uh, having the funds audited by a PCAOB accountant and delivered. There's a bunch of rules about delivery of those financial statements. <laughs> the yeah. argument being if you are delivering audited financial statements, the clients can look and see and make sure that there's nothing nothing bad going on. If it's if you deem to have custody because, like I said, the, you're paying clients' bills or you have the ability to take money out, you could do what that you could hire a PCAOB firm to what was called a surprise custody exam. What they do is they come in once a year on a surprise basis, and they'll just make sure that there's nothing untoward going on. Those are sort of the big rules. But you want to, those are the big ones. If if you, you want to avoid having access to client funds and being able to take client funds take funds out of clients' accounts, and and if you're a general partner of a partnership, that creates problems. But again, there's a lot more to the rule than that. And you say, well, why is it so complicated? Well. It gets into this whole thing of uh, all the compliance requirements under the rules, delivery of financial statements, and who's a qualified custodian, and you know the time periods. There's a lot that goes into it. But they, they need the SEC really needs to rethink it. Anytime you got you know thousands of thousands of words, or you know 50, I think it's like 15 pages printed out of FAQs. I think it's it's time to rethink the rule. It's funny, as you keep talking, we get more and more questions. I'm like, this is going to be a two-hour show by the time we're done, so I will respect your time. But I have, we have a lot of questions here. Well, and go so ahead. Maybe, uh, well, yeah, and also maybe um, maybe we could do like a Q&A blog or something like that um, sure. with you on the topic of compliance. Sure. Um, so somebody just typed this in. They said, we've recently – I'm going to just read it. Um, we have recently seen the SEC use self-reporting for mutual fund share class disclosure and new FINRA for 529 plans. Yep. Do you see self-reporting as a trend for the regulators? I think yes, yes, I do. I think it's um, you know 
they have been uh, complaining about lack of resources for a long time. Um, and this is a way for the industry to self-police. It's, it's, the, it's the industry to police itself. Um, so, you know, th- this is a particular area where they saw widespread concerns. So they went this idea of sort of amnesty that if you if you reported yourself and you um, you made restitution to clients, um, they would not hit you with a fine. The problem, of course, is you could still get a public enforcement action against you, um, and it did not protect individual executives. The SEC made pretty clear that just because you self-report doesn't mean that your executives are, have amnesty if they did something wrong. So there's a lot of uh, it's 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 not quite as straightforward as just just self-reporting. It's not like returning the library book late. You know, there's a lot more to it than that. Um, I, I think. Um, my recommendation is always before self-reporting, you should consult with a, a you know a lawyer that can give you some advice on what the best, uh, how to how to deal how to do that and whether you should do that. But uh, I do see that as a trend. I think that you're going to see a lot more of those and a lot more issues where uh, they're going to ask for self-reporting. And I and I think unfortunately what you're seeing now is the SEC is starting to sweep um, firms that did not necessarily report and they're they're whacking them with pretty big fines. So I, I it's it's. Uh, it's, it, it, uh, we can have a broader debate, Elizabeth, whether or not that is a proper use of regulatory authority to sort of scare people into uh, right. coming forward. But you know, again, I'm, I'll, I'll, if they ever uh, you know elect me or appoint me head of the SEC, we, I can make that change. But it is what it is, and I, I, <laughs> I think idea, uh, yeah, right. It, it, it is what it, it, you know, people, people. People, no, no, there's no. Believe me, no, no, there's no hint for me. Um, um, the, 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 those days are long over. But I, I think the. Uh, I think the bigger issue, though, is it's people always ask us for you know what, what the government should do. I don't. I always say that's not my job. My job is to tell you what they t- they want you to do. Um, and the, the, I do think self-reporting will be an ongoing trend. So let's talk government for a minute. I didn't check the news before I went um, um, live on air with you here, but did the government <laughs> shut down? I don't know if if you saw the news, uh, but um, I don't know. But have, if they do, <laughs> I haven't got any notices that they ha- that it has. So okay. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming the answer is no. What uh, what happens again with like examination programs? Is there, you know, a halt in the examination programs, or um, you know, what what happens if this keeps happening in 2019? Yeah, you know, I, the damage of, of the last shutdown was significant, and I think, you know, just because the government's back up and running, um, the damage will be lasting certainly all year. Uh, you know, the truth is. The SEC has activities they're supposed to accomplish over the course of the year. Um, and, uh, you know, the one thing you can't get back more of is time. And they have 11 months to do the same work they're supposed to do in 12 months now. Um, so examinations were put on hold, and there's a question, will they be able to do all those examinations? Um, now, maybe there are people in the industry think, oh, great, we'll do have fewer examinations. But I, I don't think anyone in the industry thinks that's good, you know, that you have less supervision of the industry. I think that's not a good thing. Um, you have um, – the, there is a concern about statute of limitations on enforcement cases. You know, the, the Supreme Court has changed the statute of limitations over the last couple of years, uh, and uh, so the, the enforcement division is encouraged to file quicker. They lost a month of time, so that puts them on their heels, and there's a backlog. You know, IPOs were delayed. You can't get that time back. New products were delayed. Exemptive applications, no action letters, all delayed. But here's the biggest problem, I think. And and maybe uh, not, not no, no one will agree with uh, my sympathies, but I feel for the people at the, at the commission. 
um, you know, these are people that are all have other opportunities. You know, it's a, these are they're generally well respected. Um, they're not super highly paid, and if th- their compensation becomes at risk, um, like it was, you know, it doesn't take a lot for those people to start to leave, and and a brain drain at a place like the SEC would be very damaging to the industry. Okay. You know, these these are people, and and I that, and I'm sure there are people that because of that. Uh, I can't name names that I, I'm aware of, but I'm sure there are those that that was the push they needed to go find a private sector job, and I, I just don't know if that's necessarily good for anybody. No. All right. I would. I'm wondering if we can come back to your book, and then we'll and then we'll uh, end our call today. Sure. <laughs> I've kept you sure. for over an hour, but um, where can people? Where do you want people to buy your book? Would you like people to go to Amazon or your website, Sipperman.com? Or where? Yeah. No. Amazon's the place to get it, and it's it's available in two forms. You can buy it. You you can get one for Kindle, which I think is a lot less money. It's nine ninety five, I think, and and then there's then you can buy it, get the hard copy uh, as well. Um, and then I would also encourage people to sign up for the daily blog, which is free. Free is good, um, and you can sign up for the daily blog via our website, which is uh, superman dot com. Um, and that way you can get the trees every day, and then you can look at the forest. and And I'll tell you, Marty's starting to work on the second edition because uh, one thing I learned the hard way is you should never write a book about trends because it's inherently time-limiting. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, my, my, my next book, I think, is going to be about historical things. But anyway, so I'm already working on the second edition, um, which, you know, uh, will probably be two, you know, two years in the making. But, uh, yeah, uh, I, if you want to see what's going on in real time, you can certainly go, go see the blog. And I, I'd like to t- tell everybody to please, yes, go to his blog. Um, it's at Sipperman.com. Especially if you're um, new to the industry, um, you know, whatever level you're at. But I find him, I find Todd to be a, a super teacher. Um, he, just like this phone call, you, you know, you learn so much. And um, what I like that you do also is that you give your opinion on things, which is very helpful. <laughs> I, I, I'm laughing because um, it, it's sort of it's sort of very interesting. It, it's something not a lot of folks do. Um, no. And I, I I think part of it is I don't work for a particular company, so you know it's my firm. I can say whatever I want, um, which is helpful. But I also think um, I, I I had a, I had a mentor once years ago, when I worked in a law firm, that said uh, you know a lot of lawyers hate giving opinions, and he always say that's why people hire us because they want our opinion. And, um, I, you know, I, I make very clear it's it's my opinion. It's my view of the world. And uh, But what I'm trying to do more than give my opinion and, and, I, and is to say is to give people context. That's really yeah. what I'm trying to do. You know, you can agree or disagree, but you, you, to just read a summary of something is, is so hard. What, what does it mean? I'm, I'm, what I try to do with these alerts is try to give you some context by saying this is the meaning of this much deeper than simply what this says. Um, and you, you'll see that, you know, some are more, more, more interesting than others. Um, and I gave a little bit of that. We talked about hypothetical back-tested data. I can, I can tell you a case where a, a firm got an enforcement action for using hypothetical back-tested data. And the SEC, the actual the, the enforcement case will say, well, I didn't disclose enough. But you'll see in my, my take on it, it really has nothing to do to this disclosure. You're never going to be able to disclose enough. It, it, you can't do it. What the SEC is actually saying is you can't do it. And uh, that's what I mean by giving giving some perspective on it. Yeah. Well, the other thing, too, that I like that you do is you, you'll give an opinion, but you don't put the opinion out there so as to 
um, cause controversy or cause, you know, you know, fights in the comments or whatever, <laughs> you know, because sometimes people intentionally try to aggravate people to get likes and comments and shares and so forth. And I, I find the way you do things to be peaceful. Well, um, I'm, Within, I'm, you know, I'm, 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 I'm originally from, you, you mentioned Midwestern uh, before I'm, I'm, I grew up in Buffalo, New York, which is more Midwestern than East Coast, and I mean that yeah. with the, the, the highest respect to my my former Buffalonians. Hello, Buffalo. <laughs> yeah, my, yeah. yeah. Hello, a shout out, right? Um, and I, you know that, that's, but but I think so. That that's part of it. I think yeah. part, it, part of it also, I think, is my lawyer background. And I, I've had this. There's been several times where the SEC has done things that I've just disagreed with, and I'm very careful not to attack the agency or the people. I think that's out of bounds. I just I think it's out of bounds. Um, I think it is very much in bounds to attack the principle. If there's a principle I disagree with, I think it's very fair to say, okay, I don't agree with that. We mentioned the custody rule. I I am fair. Social media, right? Social media. I I think I think they're they need a policy. I don't think that's a the fault of Chairman Clayton or or um, Dahlia Bloss who runs the division of management. That's not a personal thing. Um, for all I know, they may agree with me. I have no idea. But I think the, the custody rule needs some rework, and I, I'm not alone in thinking that. And it's not, a, it's not a shot at the people that wrote the rule or that enforced the rule. I think right. it's always fair game to have a, an intellectual conversation about the substance of these, these rules. So we get to be, I think because I think we actually all share, I think most reasonable people in the industry and the regulators share the same goal, which I know people, it hurts people to tell when I say that. We want a clean industry. We don't want bad apples. We don't want fraud. We don't want people cutting corners. We, we, want, we want to protect investors. I think we all share that goal. I think the question is, what's the most effective way to get there? Um, and I, so I, I think we can all get there through the debate. And maybe, that, maybe, that's, uh, um, maybe I'm crazy to have that lofty ideal, but I think we can get there. No, I, I, I think it's a great idea. And, and it's, been, it's been truly an honor to have you on the show. And I appreciate everything um, that you talked about and your insight and um, the, your ability to help others comprehend. I articulated it finally. <laughs> that is what I, I find you so talented at is the, when, when um, I know us adults, we all learn different ways and so forth, and I think you have a knack for helping people comprehend, um, and I think that's priceless. So thank you for that. I know I, know I learn. And um, I just want to thank Todd for being our guest here on the Best Ever You Show. This is sort of a career corner. I, I keep saying that I, I have this new thing on Best Ever You um, that's going to be launched. It's called Career Corner. And so if you are a person out there who is thinking about what kind of career to have, I know the compliance industry <laughs> needs some young folks to, <laughs> to sure think do. about yeah. compliance. Um, and there are so many different things you can do with compliance from sports to healthcare to, you know, the investment management, you know, area. There's so many things that you can do. And we have Todd here um, who's a great resource in the industry to um, help. And Todd, are you available if people want to reach out to you and ask you? Absolutely. You can reach me. My my email is right on my website. Okay, perfect. Um, And please, buy his book. It's awesome. Um, I have a copy. It's not signed yet, but it will be. Um, and where are you going to be? So people, if they do want to come up to you and get their book signed, um, 
and and talk to you more. Do you have events and things yeah, like that um, that you wanted to talk I, about? You know, I'm I'm heavily involved in the investment management industry. I'll be at several of the conferences this year. Um, uh, there's a, I'll be at the mutual fund conference. I'll be at the ICI general membership meeting. Uh, we'll be at the National Society of Compliance Professionals conference. So a lot of those conferences uh, I will be at if uh, if someone wants. And we'll, we'll actually be giving away books if you actually attend those conferences as well. So we can awesome. find them. And it's called The Compliance Advantage, 10 Must-Know Trends to Protect Your Investment Firm. And it's by Todd Zipperman. And we heard it today that, you know, Volume 2 is coming out. So, hey, that's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> A little bit of insight. All right. Thank you, Todd, for being with us. I appreciate it so much. Well, Elizabeth, thank you for the kind words, and thank you for having me. I appreciate it. All right, you guys. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And, you know, best ever you, we're all grassroots. We do no advertising, no anything like that. It's all you guys getting us to all these millions of downloads. So it's very cool. And, you know, best ever you, Tribe, let's go. Let's share a show, size book, all that great stuff. And we will follow up. He did, this is cool, he did a personal blog, too. So you're going to get to know a little bit about him. You might not have known why we were listening today that he's been married 27 years. And we didn't hear about his two teenage daughters. But he's going to share a little bit more about himself personally. And maybe if you guys have questions, you can um, launch those compliance questions at him, and we can do those on our blog too in that compliance corner. So thank you all so much for your hour-plus time and energy. And, again, the social media share buttons are on the show, and we thank you all for being with us. Take care and have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Best Ever You Show. Want more? Visit us at besteveryou.com. Be your best and keep it real. Confident, successful, caring, and beautiful every day with Best Ever You. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial, LLC, member SIPC.